Good morning, everybody, and uh, thanks, Steve. That was a difficult Bible reading, but a good one, a powerful one. <clears throat> if you haven't met me yet, my name is Hal Rahn, uh, and it's, I'm on the, on the leadership team here, and um, it's a pleasure to be able to preach God's word to you. <coughs> I hope you've been enjoying our time in Isaiah. Um, I have. It's just this... Um, it's a difficult book, right? Like sometimes you look at the old books of prophecy and they're a bit difficult and the language is a bit hard to understand. But once you spend the time to drill into it, like we have been over the last couple of weeks, um, it's just powerful and full of life. Um, so I, I don't know if you've been doing this, um, but what I've been doing over the last couple of weeks and sort of uh, is trying to read Isaiah along with us in church and hopefully get to the end of it by the end. Um, so there's another seven weeks to go. If, you have, if you're not already doing this, you could do this. There are 28 um, chapters left in Isaiah. You could read a chapter every day and get to the end quite easily. You could read two chapters every day and do the entire book of Isaiah. Um, and you'll have finished Isaiah with, no, uh, with lots of time to spare. Um, now, I don't have a book to give away because uh, I'm not as organized as hands, but I do have a book to recommend. If you do want to read along with Isaiah, the single best book I can recommend is this book, Isaiah, Surprising. Salvation by Kirk Patston. Um, he's one of my favorite. He's one of my top five favorite preachers, and uh, I got to study with him in Bible college. That was cool. Um, but it is um, he makes a very. There's a lot of interesting and difficult and complicated things going on in Isaiah, but he makes it really easy to access and approach. And um, yeah, he um, interestingly enough, for whatever reason, he actually starts uh, in chapter 36, which is where we're looking at today. So with that segue, let's get into Isaiah chapter 36 and 37, uh, and let's pray, and then I'll, I'll get going. Father in heaven, would you, would you prepare our hearts to hear you today? Isaiah reminds us that you are holy, 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 and that should scare us because we are unclean people, and we have unclean lips. And we live among people of unclean lips. And so how marvelous it is that through Jesus you make us whiter than snow. That you take away our guilt and shame. That we can approach your throne. That we can worship you and listen to you and hear your voice. And we want to thank you for the words that we have before us. The words of your faithful servant Isaiah. Um, written down, recorded for us that we can approach them and read them today. Would you help us to approach you today and to listen to you and trust your words to us as generations of your people have been called to? In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 36 and 37 are written about a very particular people undergoing a spectacular existential crisis. Now, in the last few years, we've learned something about existential crises, big and small, and they take all sorts of forms, and they can be personally quite devastating. We've seen the Ukrainian war, and maybe you've imagined life as a Ukrainian refugee. Your city's been bombed, your home has been destroyed. There is a, there is a possibility, however remote, that next year your country may not even exist. Or maybe you're a Syrian refugee, wondering if the 11-year war in your country will ever end wondering if the world has forgotten about you and your plight. But closer to home, there are different sorts of existential crises. In the last three years, COVID and the fear of COVID has ripped open the band-aids 
on our fears and our insecurities, on our willingness to trust and listen to the authorities that God has put into place. It's ripped away our daily routine. It's ripped away our familiar and our everyday. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I've used phrases like the new normal a lot. But a phrase like the new normal only, only reinforces how abnormal life is right now, right? Masks, social distancing, staying at home. It's actually very odd and very strange, and it's difficult to live with. And the scars are still with us, right? Some of my children still choose to wear masks to school all day, every day. And some of their teachers have almost never seen them face to face. I still work from home often. And that sounds like a blessing, but as an extrovert, I profoundly miss interacting with um, workmates every day. I'm used to I used to take public transport every day to work, and now, to be honest, I am scared of taxing public transport. I avoid it whenever possible. Life isn't back to normal. Our existential crises just keep rolling on. And we feel bad sometimes for feeling bad about our little issues, but our mental health has been eroded all the same, hasn't it? It's been a difficult couple of years. Or maybe your house has been destroyed by rains and the flood. Perhaps your possessions are being destroyed by mould and by water damage. Or maybe it's a different sort of issue that you've been living with. Maybe you or a loved one have heard the unwelcome words from a doctor. Cancer. And you wonder how you're going to get through the next year, let alone the next week. And the thing about an existential crisis is that it questions your existence. Who am I really? Where is my home? Who are my people? How important is my job? What do I value? What is really important in life? And when things are desperate, who do I go to for help? And who am I really praying to? Who can help me when I am desperate? And sometimes that existential crisis becomes a spiritual crisis, right? Is God really there? Does he really listen? Can I really trust God? Can I trust his words? Today's passage speaks of a particular existential crisis facing God's people. Their questions and our questions, they're given shape, they're given tangible words by the enemies of God. And as we dig into it, I think you'll find these questions are familiar because we've heard these questions before. And as we think about how the people of God is God have responded to these questions in the past, it'll help us think about how do we hold on in the, in the present and in the future when we are in a crisis? How do we persevere until the end? And so, Isaiah. There are two sorts of superhero movies. The first is this. Uh, it's an origin story, and you have an innocent young boy or girl. They have a traumatic experience, and as a result, they find something within themselves, and they start training, and you see a training montage, and then they're grown up, and they're fighting bad guys, and they're awesome. But there's a second sort of story, which jumps straight into the action. It just starts with a fight scene. It just starts with a rescue scene. And you're just supposed to know that the guy with the shield, he's Captain America. The guy with the hammer, he's Thor. The green guy, he's the Hulk. You're just supposed to know. And Isaiah 36 is a, the second sort of story. It just drops us straight into the action. It just assumes you know who all the characters are. You're just supposed to know that Jerusalem, Jerusalem is the city of God. And in this battle, he, this Jerusalem is the underdog. You're supposed to know that Assyria, they're the big bad guy. They're King Snack. 
the evil bad guy. Um, they're, um, they're the current world superpower. They've got iron weapons. They've got a dangerous cavalry. Oh, wait, actually, I've got pictures. <laughs> Let's see if this works. Sweet. Um, artist impression. Um, I think this is legitimately some Assyrian uh, carvings. Um, but this is who they are, right? This is their, what they're proud of is their dangerous cavalry. Point of interest if you're a history buff. Um, notice they've, they've invented the bit and bridle so they can ride horses around, but they haven't invented stirrups yet. And so actually, riding a horse takes a lot of skill, and the Assyrians have figured it out. Um, but when the Assyrian king taunts Israelites, and so they probably couldn't find 2,000 riders, you can't do it, um, he's probably right, because this takes a lot of skill and training that they don't have. Um, anyway, they spent the better part of two decades conquering every other nation, including the two nations immediately to the north of Judah. And by the time we get to Isaiah 36, right, we're in the middle of the action, and they've already been at war. Assyria's already conquered every other town in Judah, and now it's got the capital besieged. It feels as if defeat is almost inevitable. It would be a little bit as if it'll be a little bit like me racing Usain Bolt in a foot race. Usain Bolt, uh, you know who he is, right? Fastest man on earth, eight gold medals. Um, it's a million to one. He wins races like this. Um, right, so if I, were to, if I were in a foot race against Usain Bolt, even if I was 21 again, even before I had knee reconstructions, I would still have no hope in winning, right? Absolutely none. Defeat seems inevitable. But, of course, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, there's a little bit more at stake than just, you know, shame and defeat. They're profounding... They're facing a profound existential crisis. It's death. It is the destruction of their city. It's the horrors of war. And it's not just an existential crisis. Right? We need to set up the stakes. It's not just an existential crisis. It's a profound spiritual crisis because this war raises this question. Is everything that I've ever believed wrong? You see, the destruction of Jerusalem represents the defeat, the destruction of your entire system of belief. Jerusalem's a city of God. It has the temple of God. God chooses to live here, right? So you're the people of God. God chose you. And Hezekiah, the son of God, son of David, he lives here. He's God's chosen king. So, so if, so if the Assyrians can come and they can destroy Jerusalem, then maybe then maybe our God isn't as strong as he says he is. Maybe the word of God isn't as trustworthy as we think it is. And so you're hoping, you're hoping that God will defend Jerusalem. But like me against Usain Bolt, the odds don't look good. And so it's a crisis. And into this crisis, the Assyrians come. And they speak these words to tear down the walls of Jerusalem. And what they're going to do is they're going to present a world that seems far more attractive so let's listen to what the Assyrians have to say. I'm going to throw up a few verses on screen. You'll notice a running theme. Right. Hopefully you can read that. Um, right. <clears throat> 36 verse 4. Right. The, the, the field commander says, On what are you basing this confidence of yours on? Next verse, he says, On whom are you depending? Uh, verse 6. Look, I know you're depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff. I don't know if you thought about that. A staff is supposed to be, like, strong and thick and sturdy, like, you know, something that's quite thick. A reed is like a piece of grass. It just snaps. 
You can't depend on Egypt. They're useless. They're bad friends. Um, verse 7, if you say to me, we're depending on our, the Lord our God, or nine verse, uh, 9b, you're depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen, right? He's the Assyrians, and I don't know if you realize what he's doing. He's, you know that, um, that thing where a lot of wars are won with words, with propaganda, by convincing you that you're not, it's not even worth fighting? This is what they're doing. They're saying it's not even worth it. All the people you're depending on, you can't trust them. You can't trust on Egypt. You can't trust on all this other stuff. You can't trust on Hezekiah. Verse 14, he says, don't let Hezekiah deceive you. There's a king. You can't, he can't deliver you. Verse 15, don't let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord. Don't let Hezekiah mislead you. Verse 18. Um, and even in the next chapter, do not let the God you depend on deceive you. So here it is. It's the psychological bombardment from the enemies of God. Right? Here's the psychological warfare designed to break you down. He's saying, your friends, they're useless. Egypt's useless. Your king, he's untrustworthy. Hezekiah's lying. Your God, he's untrustworthy. No other gods have been able to save their nations. What makes you think that your God is different? You can't depend on your friends. You can't depend on your God. You can't depend on your king. And so, right, if you can't trust your friends, your king or your God, who should you listen to? Well, have you met my friends in Akarib? King Snack. Here's the counteroffer, right? And he's trying to make you an offer that sounds better than what you believe in at the moment. Verse 8, let's make a bargain with my master. Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you can even put riders on them. Verse 16, this is what the king of Assyria says, make peace with me and come out to me. And then each of you eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern. I don't know if we get the scope of that. Um, a, a vine and a fig tree doesn't sound that exciting to a modern audience. Um, if we translate that for 2,000 years, it's a bit like saying, when I conquer Sydney, uh, I'll give you your own two and a half acre block in Sydney. I'll even give you an investment portfolio to boot. It'll be safe. It'll be secure. It'll be good for you. And even more is coming. Verse 17, and then I'll come and take you away and then uh, to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Right? It's going to be even better. It's going to be awesome. It's like that, it's like that matter of your saying, Bitcoin, that Bitcoin is going to be worth millions of dollars one day. It's going to be great. After all, Assyria has conquered every other nation in their path. No other nation has stood up to Sennacherib. So how do you think you can? How do you think little Jerusalem? How do you think that you can survive? But here's the thing. Speaking of investments, what's that disclaimer you always read? It always pops up. I don't know if you ever read the reports from your superannuation report. It always says, past performance, past performance is no indicator of future returns. You ever read that? Past performance is no indicator of future returns. Just because Assyria has won every war this, thus far doesn't mean they will continue to win every war. Can Assyria defeat our God? And what God says through the prophet Isaiah is, no, no. But the people out there, they're saying, yes. And that's a really confusing place to be. And we know when we get to Isaiah 37, we know that God does, in fact, conquer the Assyrian army. Sorry, spoiler alert. But... What I want to do is I want to stay in Isaiah 36 for just a moment. I want to stay and wrestle with this confusion. Because I think that's the reality that we live in, isn't it? 
the reality that we live in is a confusion where the Christian life in 2022 feels like we're living in Jerusalem and we're constantly under assault from the world. If you watch the news, if you watch the media, if you're on social media, it can feel like all the voices of our world, all the voices, it feels like we are under siege. The world around us is saying, can you really trust what God says? Can you really trust this book, this Bible? Can you really trust your friends? Can you really trust your king? And the world says, join us. Be like us. It's better over here. You'll have more money. You'll have more fun. You'll be able to do more things. You won't have to do all, have, live with all those restrictions that Christians live with. You'll be able to live your life to the full. You'll be able to earn more money. You'll be able to be, greed is good, right, over here in this world. You won't have to sacrifice so much. The thing about Australia in 2022, Jerusalem, 8th century BC, in some sense, the people of God have always been at war with the world. And the words that you're hearing are not new ones, are they? There's been a voice that has questioned God's authority since the very beginning. Do you remember what the serpent said to Eve? What did, what did he say? The serpent said, did God really say that? Did God really say you can't eat the fruit? Can you really trust him? You can't really trust him. Right? Isn't that what the serpent said? And then the voice inside said, hey, look, the fruit looks really good. Eat the fruit. You're not really going to die. Right? Since the beginning of time, 8th century BC, 2022, if humans are still alive in a 1,000 years, that voice is still going to be with us. The words you're hearing are not new ones. The temptations you are hearing is not a new one. The voice that says, you know what? The world is pretty good. Come and live with us. Ignore God. You don't need him. That's not a new voice. And this voice knocks at our Christian life and our Christian faith all the time. It constantly comes with us. It seeks to say, you know what? This Christian life is not that great. There's something better out there. It's a voice that tells you, you know what, you're a fool for even believing in God. You're uneducated, you're foolish. It's a voice that constantly bombards us with, with sex as a weapon, as a toy, as a commodity, as a spectacle to be shared on the internet. It's a voice that tells you, you know what, you need more stuff to be happy. You need more money, you need more toys, you need a better career, you need more stuff. It's a voice that says, you know what, your view of sexuality and marriage and gender is archaic. It's dated. It's dangerous, it's divisive, it's hateful. Can you hear the world? Can you hear its hostility to God and hostility to the way that we ought to live? Can you hear its derision for living God's way? Can you hear it making you an attractive offer to walk away from God? Well, friends, the rest of this sermon is, talk is what's our defence against that? And the very first defense is against the devil and the world is to be wise to it, just to know that that voice is there. It's not a passive voice saying, you can, you can just do your thing. It's a voice saying, you know what? What you believe is ridiculous. We need to be wise to it. The voice is there all the time. But the second defense is to listen to God, to tr listen to his words and remember why he is trustworthy. And so let's get to that, shall we? Let's remember why our God is, can be trusted. He is trustworthy. He is good. And so here is the message of hope from God. Let's send to Isaiah 37. 
So what we're going to see as we turn to Isaiah 37, um, we'll, we'll see three things as we listen to what God says and what he does. We'll see, we'll see judgment, we'll see salvation, and we'll see fulfillment. So let's go to verse 28. I put up a slide for your easy convenience. Verse 28. But I know, oh, this is God speaking to the king of Assyria, right? This is what he's saying. But I know where you are and when you come and go and how you rage against me. And because you rage against me, because your insolence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will make you return by the way you came. First of all, God sees the king of Assyria. He sees what he has said and what he has done, and God promises judgment. He will be judged for his insolence and judged for his defiance against the true and living God. Who, just like Hezekiah says, our God is nothing like all these other false gods of all the nations. He is the true and living God. So we see judgment, we see salvation. Verse 33, um, he says, This is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter the city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with, siege, uh, with shield or build a siege ramp against it. And verse 35, I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Second, what we see, God sees and God sees his people. And God promises salvation. Not straight away, but soon. But it will come and he will come and he will rescue his people. He will preserve his people. He will bring salvation. Third, um, what God says comes to pass. Verse 36 then the angel of the Lord went out, and he put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. And when the people got up the next morning, they were all dead bodies. And so Zanakarib, king of Assyria, he broke camp, he withdrew, he returned to Nineveh, and he stayed there. In my hypothetical race with Usain Bolt, the miraculous has happened. <clears throat> I couldn't beat Usain Bolt on my own, but on the way to the starting line, he's tripped, he's fallen, he's torn his hamstring... I don't even need to get to the finish line. I win by default. It's as if that has happened. I didn't lift a hypothetical finger to do it. And in God's sovereignty, Assyria is defeated. Judah didn't even need to lift a finger. It's all by God's grace. Some scholars think it was the bubonic plague or something similar, and archaeologists have found mass graves in Lachish, which is where uh, the Syrian army was stationed. But the key thing here is, right, God did it. God in his sovereignty, he promised salvation and he accomplished salvation. But wait, there's still more, right? Because God also promised judgment. And God delivers judgment on Zanacharib, the king of Assyria. Verse 38, one day while he was worshipping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his son Adramelech and Shariza killed him with the sword and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, was succeeding him as king. God delivers judgment on his enemies, like King Zanacharib. Zanacharib, the king of Assyria, is murdered in the temple of his false god, which some might call poetic justice. Um, interesting to point out, though, this event actually happens 20 years after the siege of Jerusalem. And so for those under siege, if you've lived through that siege for 20 years, 20 years seems like a long time to wait for God's judgment to fall. But the fact is, it does happen, and it will happen, right? 
God will keep his word. God will fulfill his promises. But it may take a long time, right? Abraham didn't get the son he was promised until he was, until he was 100. Sometimes God makes us wait. And so here is the difficulty of the Christian life. We are here, and we're besieged by the world, and we have these promises of salvation and judgment. And so even though we have God's promises, it's on us now. Do we have the faith to wait for 20 years, 30 years, 60 years, 80 years, 100 years for God to be faithful? Can we endure the difficulties from the world? Because that's what we're being called to do. Can we endure? Can we persevere through the siege, through the mockery, through the hard times, the loneliness, through the tides, through the traumas? There are many wonderful things about the Christian life, but there are a lot of trials to endure as well. One of the words we see in the Bible again and again is perseverance. Brothers and sisters, we need to persevere. We need to persevere to the end. And when the world asks you, well, why do you rely on this God? Why do you believe this? Well, we have the same answer that God gives to Hezekiah, right? We can trust in his character. He is a promise-keeping God who keeps his promises. We can see that right here. We can trust his ability. He is the all-powerful God who made everything. He can even raise the dead. And he can send a plague on that kills 185,000 people. He can do anything. We can trust his character, we can trust his ability, and we can trust in his word. Because what he says comes to pass. And what he says is he's going to come and he's going to judge the living and the dead. The words of the Apostle Peter are helpful here. This is 2 Peter chapter 3. This is what Peter says. In the last days, scoffers will come scoffering and following their own evil desires, and they will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything just goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Yes, the scoffers are going to come. And they're going to say what we believe is ridiculous. But judgment is coming too. And and the Bible calls us to be patient. Just like God is patient. Because he wants everyone to come to repentance. And so, what do we do while we wait? We know that judgment is coming. We know that the end will come and he will save us. But what do we do in the meantime? If you're following along, we're into our third point now. Well, one of the best ways that we can exercise our faith as we wait for the Lord Jesus is to pray. So I want to spend a few minutes looking at Hezekiah's prayer. Back in Isaiah 37, verse 14. Having talked about everything we talked about, let's reread it. Um, Isaiah 37, verse 14. This is Hezekiah's prayer. 
He went up to the temple of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim. You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Zanacharib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all the peoples and their, and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know you, Lord. That, sorry, that all the kings may know that you, Lord, are the only God. I like this little story of Hezekiah because, I mean, he's a king. Yes, he's a king. There's lots of fancy things around him, but when it comes down to it, he's a believer like you and me, and he prays. And you can see a king who's just trying to keep his faith, his own faith, and his kingdom intact. And we see a man with the whole world on his shoulders. And what does he do when a foreign king threatens him? I don't know. He should be talking to his foreign advisors and trying to negotiate a peace deal. Instead, he is on his knees in prayer. When faced with an existential crisis and a spiritual crisis, he turns to God. And here's the thing about prayer, right? It is, at heart, it's your personal one-to-one conversation with God. One of my favourite theologians says that as the most basic and elemental prayer, prayer is just calling to God for help. It's, and this is his words, it's the raw articulation of the most desperate bodily need, the out loud utterance unbearable suffering and misery that just must be voiced. It's a primal basic human instinct to call out to the creator for help. When you're drowning at sea, when your child has just gone missing, when you've just been diagnosed with cancer, when you're in a trench with bullets flying overhead, you call to some greater power, something up there, you call to your maker for help. Because who else is going to save you? In your existential crisis, who else is there to turn on? You call to your creator for help. And maybe in your time of need, you've called on God like that. And if you have, maybe it's worth knowing more about the God you've been praying to. After the more you know, the better you can pray. And it helps to know that you're praying to this God, our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Hezekiah, and Isaiah, and Jesus. And it's worth remembering that our God that we pray to is the God who made the world and the God who can save. And the God who, who, not, who became human and understands our suffering and what it's like up close and personal. And that's why we pray in Jesus' name. And so Hezekiah prays and he exercises his faith in his prayer. And he sees God in his throne before the cherubim. Back in Isaiah chapter 6, the angel's crying, holy, holy, holy. He remembers that God is a holy God. And he acknowledges that God alone is God. He mentions all the other gods that aren't really gods. And he says, well, no, you are God. And that's important because he needs to believe that. We need to believe that. That our God is not like all the other gods all those other things that are supposed to be able to save us, that our God can and will and does save us. And our God is powerful. He made the heavens and the earth. And verse 20, his hope and prayer is that everyone might know that Yahweh, our God, is the only God. Just in the same way that when we pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. It's the same heart. It's the same heart in prayer. Brothers and sisters, we've got to keep praying because prayer is our constant exercise of faith. Hopefully I'll see you all at that prayer day. And 
Friends, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you can still pray. You can still call on God and he will hear you. That is the promise of the Bible. And friends, next time you feel besieged by the world, we should pray. And when our hearts are heavy, because life is difficult and it gets difficult, we should pray. In our times of joy, we should pray. In our times of crisis, we should pray. And when you're doubting God's goodness, you should pray. And when you don't know how you can hang on to your faith, but hanging on is all you've got, you can pray. And when you've got nothing left, you can call out to God and you can pray. And when you've got nobody left to turn to, you can pray to this God, the God who saves. So lest I be accused of being a hypocrite, let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to turn to you and you know that sometimes, quite often, maybe for most of us, our hearts are heavy and life is difficult. And as Christians, quite often we do feel besieged by the world, by all these voices, all the people saying that what we believe in is ridiculous and people who think that there are better things to do than turn up to church on a Sunday. But Father, we want to cling on to you. You are the true and living God. You are the God who made the universe and everything in it. And you've spoken words that are trustworthy and reliable. And we know that because we've seen your word come to pass time and time again. You said that a man would rise from the dead, and he did. You said that, that the Assyrian army would be conquered, and it was. The things you've said have come to pass. And Father, we want to acknowledge, we want to cling on to that hope that what you say about the future will come to pass. That you will bring an end to this world, you will bring judgment, and you will bring healing and wholeness. And we want to look forward to that day when, you, when all of our hopes will be fulfilled and seen in the Lord Jesus. Father, would you help us to endure? Would you give us that, would you give us your strength to persevere through all the difficult times? And Father, we want to pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus, who understands exactly what we're going through. In his name we pray. Amen. It is great to have a God who saves. We're going to celebrate that salvation that we have in Jesus together now as we share in communion. Uh, this is it's not just an opportunity to, to remember and celebrate, although it's no less than that. It's also an opportunity to participate with one another. We reenact what happens together again as we eat the bread, which represents Jesus' body, and we drink the juice, which represents Jesus' blood. But before we do that, um, if you're joining us and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're just checking Jesus out, checking church out, we're really glad you're here. This is a meal that Jesus gave his followers, so don't feel any pressure to join in. You don't have to join in. Uh, as these guys are going to hand the bread and the juice round out in a moment, you can just politely decline it. They're not going to pressure you. They're not going to give you, you know, a funny eye. Uh, you can just politely ask them to pass it along, and that's totally fine. And if you're joining us online, uh, we do look forward to having you back next month to share in this together. Uh, you might just want to reflect on the salvation that God has won for his people in Jerusalem and the salvation that he's won for us through Jesus. Before we get into it, how about I pray? Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the salvation that you have won for us in Jesus. And as we are reminded of your salvation, Father, we are reminded of what we needed saving from. Father, we know we haven't lived the life that you've called us to live. We know we haven't worshipped you as we should. We haven't given thanks to you as we should. We haven't honoured you as we should have. And so, Father, forgive us. Make us the people that you want us to be. Grow us to full maturity in your son, Jesus. Help us together to put our sin to death and live lives that now honour you. And Father, now as we share in this commemorative meal together, would you remind us of your grace and your forgiveness? Amen. All right, I'm going to invite our servers to come up. They're going to pass out a piece of bread and a small little cup of juice. Please hold on to it. They're going to make sure, they're going to take every precaution to make sure they're safe. They have gloves, they have masks. So don't worry, they haven't contaminated your food. While that's coming around, you, you too might want to reflect on the salvation that Jesus has won for you.